Um, I am so grateful you guys are here. This is just going to be a really sweet time together. And before we do anything, I just want to pray and just offer this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just invite you into this space, Lord. More than any sensory input that you have, we know that your, your presence and your Holy Spirit is palpable. So God, I just ask, would you take reign of my tongue and may you say the words you want to say. Use the information that we receive to glorify you and the people that we come in contact with. Lord, you've created us so uniquely, so intricately. And we just love you and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today is going to be about identifying sensory processing concerns. Um, I am an occupational therapist. I started off in Colorado Springs working at a pediatric outpatient clinic. Your typical pizza tea clinic, working with a lot of kiddos with sensory concerns, developmental delays, autism, a variety of developmental delays. Um, A few years in, we started noticing, you know, we're getting a lot of referrals for kiddos with severe behavior difficulties going on, but what we're seeing in the diagnoses aren't matching up, and so what's going on here? We're not seeing the developmental delays that we can connect this to or the typical reasoning, and so we started looking further into their history and noticing we're seeing a commonality of trauma, and so that's when we opened up our trauma-based clinic, and um, I got to help start that clinic about three years in, and um, and it's been just phenomenal to see. This is one of the nation's first trauma-based clinics, um, specifically for kiddos who have had just a background in adverse childhood experiences and watching how does that impact their interactions in daily life. And in both settings, the traditional sensory clinic setting and then and then in more of what you would consider a mental health setting, I have found this to be the greatest tool that I rely on again and again. And um, sensory processing disorder is not a diagnosis that you would find in the DSM, but I personally really like that because I think that its intention was never to be a what, but rather a why. And so that's why I have this picture of this beautiful plant, even though I'm not from, I'm from Colorado, <laughs> This is not the cannabis plant. (laughs) Um, We're starting this off with this picture in particular because I feel like it just gives a good kind of word picture to why I value sensory. So a lot of times when we see kiddos come into our clinics or come into our classrooms, we see the plant above the surface. Okay, maybe they have a label on that plant, tomato plant or bipolar or ADHD. And maybe we can look at the fruits of that plant and possibly get some help identifying it. But if there's concerns with how well that plant is producing, where do we need to look? The roots, yes. We need to look under the surface and see what's going on and why. And sensory has been the window or the lens into me understanding so much more of what's going on with the children that I work with. I kind of take a um, approach of when a child comes into the office, I kind of glance at the diagnoses, but I put them to the side. I want to hear what mom has to say. What are the symptoms that you are experiencing? And you know what's amazing is it doesn't matter if that patient has 
one diagnosis or ten diagnoses, a lot of times it's the same repetitive concerns. We're having concerns with behavior, aggression, learning difficulties, motor, motor planning difficulties, learning, attention. And so I'm able to see, okay, we're seeing the same things coming up over and over and over again. But again, why? What's underneath this? And what I love about sensory is that we're all sensory beings. So kind of like how you and I can look at each other when you say, I'm having a really tough day. We can look at each other as, like, as brothers and sisters in Christ and go, I know why you're having a really tough day. It's not because of your anxiety diagnosis. It's because you're a sinner. <laughs> and so for the rest of us, same thing. We can look at underneath the surface and go, guess what? I'm a sensory processing freak, too. We're on the same page. Don't worry. I can relate with your differences. I've got twerks and uniquenesses and little quirks that make me different as well. And so it's been a really sweet opportunity to just understand the children that I'm working with a little bit better. And I'm hopeful that it will be for you as well. So you all came into this talk probably with some little bit of knowledge of sensory because... You chose it. So I'm just curious, when you think of sensory, what's the picture that you think of? I know, last session, you want us to participate. I think of children that are developmental milestones and things like that. And that's what they do. Yes, not hitting developmental milestones. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Kind of like one of these kiddos in the classroom <laughs> standing on the desk or fighting with the ruler. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we will unpack this more. So the three objectives for today, we want to talk about how does the body process sen- sensory information, get an overall understanding of how the nervous system works. Then, which areas are being affected? And three, what do I do about it? So, as an overview of just the nervous system, we have what I like to call an epic game of telephone. (laughs) So, how many of you guys remember as a kid playing the game telephone where you sat around in a circle and you give a message to the person next to you and it goes all the way around and you find something really hilarious by the end? Okay, how many of you remember the other game of telephone where you get a cup and a string and your buddy goes in the room next to you and you have... This is the beautiful merge of these two systems together. <laughs> so we have our receptors who are, that are receiving information from all of our surrounding. Right now you've got visual information, auditory information, tactile information from your seat. Um, you're smelling maybe the person next to you tasting your coffee breath from this morning. And so all of this is coming in from your receptors that are surrounding your body. It hits that first cup takes the string up, and then takes the next cup as it comes up the spinal cord. Once it hits the spinal cord, it comes up to the brain, knocks on that brain stem, and says, hello, do you hear me? And if the brain stem detects that information, then it enters the brain. Once it enters the brain, the brain has three primary responsibilities, and this is really where we start looking when we have concerns of sensory processing. The brain's three responsibilities are, one, integration, which is the pairing or bringing together of two systems. So if someone were to have just slammed that door really loud, what would we all do? Jump and 
Look, yes. So we're trying to get our visual system to pair up with our auditory system and say, okay, one, I need to react and, and be ready to move if needed. That fight or flight jumps in. But then also our brains, without us having to tell them to, says, that might be a threat. I need to look to gather more information to assess the situation. That's integration. Modulation, I like to say, is just the turning up or turning down of the volume dial. So right now, auditorily, you guys are hearing me, but you're also hearing this wonderful box right here. You might be hearing your neighbor clicking a pencil. You might be hearing... um, Someone out in the hallway, there's a lot of auditory information that's going on in addition to all of the visual information and additional tactile information of tags on your clothes and things like that. If you are able to say, I'm going to put most of my attention to the person who's talking in the front of the room and the slide that's up there, then you're able to turn up the volume on that information and turn down the volume on your neighbor clicking the pencil. For a kiddo who struggles with modulation, I don't know how to turn turn my own my own dials, if you will. I, I, when I hear that kiddo who's clicking the pencil next to me, for some reason, man, the volume is totally turned up there. In fact, it's just the same loudness as the as the teacher who's talking in front of the classroom. And then third is discrimination. That's Comparing my present circumstances with the past circumstances I have experienced. So I'm able to tell, yeah, my shoes are tight enough based on past experiences. That one time when it was way too loose and I fell on my face. Or that one time it was really too tight and my feet were purple. So those are just ability to say, this is what's enough. Or I know how to respond appropriately. When I hear that car coming closer, I know to get out of the way because I can hear, you know what, it's a little bit louder than it was two seconds ago, and so that means I need to move. When a child struggles with discrimination, we don't have this ability. That's the parent who's grabbing them out of the way because I didn't just recognize that that car was giving me information that I needed to move. So what is this all for? Well, this is just the context for our brain to then be able to say, now this is how I need to react appropriately. So the overall goal is how do I respond? And I love this saying, efficient processing of sensations equates to automatic adaptive responses. I should be able to automatically, without thinking, when I hear that door slam, turn and look. When I hear that car coming, move out of the way. But if my, if my operating system isn't working or computing the way it should, then it's going to make this really challenging. So Dr. Carol Stock-Kranowitz, who um, she worked with Dr. Jean Ayers, who was kind of the founder of sensory processing disorder and is one of the ones that's just carried on the baton since Dr. Um, Ayers' death. She... She has a great clinic in Denver. It's called the Star Clinic, and there's excellent resources. But this book is one that I would highly recommend if you're just interested in learning more about sensory processing. And there's also one called The Out-of-Sync Child Has Fun. It's almost just a parent's guide to how would I engage activities with my child. They're just play activities that would engage these sensory systems. 
She says sensory processing disorder is difficulty in the way that the brain takes in, organizes, and uses sensory information, causing a person to have problems interacting effectively in the everyday environment. And what I really want to draw attention to is that everyday environment difficulty. That is what distinguishes all of us who say, you know what, I actually click my pen a lot, or I actually kind of get distracted in the classroom. We all have differences of seeking or avoiding sensory input. But when we have concern, when we want to say, okay, let's look at this root a little bit closer, is when we see the effects of what's happening above the surface is impacting their ability to succeed in everyday living. Any questions before we move on? Okay. I'm going to give you a few minutes, and I really mean just a few minutes, um, to fill out a sensory questionnaire. And I just want you to just get a little bit familiar before we dive in with what are some of the questions that we would be looking for, what are some of the indicators we would be looking for for sensory processing differences. So go ahead and take a peek and either fill this out on yourself, fill this out on a child you know, or whoever you're thinking of when you came to this session. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right there. Good. Mm. Yes. I think they're right outside that door. And if not, let me know. And I think I have one in my backpack that's a little crumbled. for this one, mm-hmm. um, and then all of the um, physical, that mm-hmm. you, I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I'll try to remember, mm-hmm. okay? Um, when you are looking at all of the like physical cues mm-hmm. you'd be looking mm-hmm. for, when I go through some of those, I just say five or six and yep. above. Okay. Um, however, if you have a child that's under that age that you are kind of concerned about, mm-hmm. there's lots of questionnaires. It's one, my favorite is the sensory profile, mm-hmm. and um, you can you can use that. They even have an infant questionnaire. Okay. So th- this is just... Um, one that's for school age, and yep. I like it the most for one that doesn't require payment for, yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for this type of purpose. But I would yeah. never use this with actual evaluation yep. for a child. Perfect. Yeah, okay. Good Great. screen. Yes, absolutely.
we'll give about one more minute. Okay, so the reason we like to do this, I like to kind of equate this back to a friend's story of mine. We had some friends over for dinner a couple years ago, and um, they, we'd have them over for dinner a bunch of times, and then this time all of a sudden they said, okay, and just so you know, we're not eating anything with gluten or tomatoes or dairy. What? <laughs> We've never... We've had you over a bunch of times. What just happened? <laughs> so um, they had just gone to see a nutritionist. They were having a bunch of headaches and had always had gut issues. And they came in and were like, okay, so tell us, what's going on with the new diet? And they said, oh, my goodness, you're not going to believe it. We just went to this nutritionist, and it was amazing. They did this blood intake and this evaluation of everything that we had shared with them, kind of the symptoms that were going on. And they told us that we were deficit in vitamin C, iron, and zinc. So we have gotten some supplements to increase that, but then they also showed us some sensitivities that we had, and we saw that we had some sensitivities in gluten and vitamin C, and I mean, sorry, not vitamin C, hurts for gluten, tomatoes, and, um, and dairy, yeah, and so I was like, well, that's awesome, how have you been feeling since you've changed your diet? Incredible. The headaches have gone away. The stomach issues have gone away. And I'm sure many of us have heard these stories because, like, Whole30 and Paleo, it's all the new fads. So we've got all of our friends trying this. But what is amazing to me is they had to do that intake to be able to see what is my body seeking, what vitamins is it needing more of, and what vitamins or what areas is it saying, oh, I don't like that. I, I, in fact, I'm not processing that well. It's very similar to what we're doing in an assessment like this. Just like when a doctor says, come on in, let me hear about your symptoms, but then says, I want to take it the next step further, and I want to get some blood work to just see a little bit further. This is our blood work when we see a child who comes in with concerns, with attention, with behaviors, is seeing what's going on underneath the surface to be able to get a deeper understanding than just the quick symptoms that mom and dad express. And so... Um, we are going to go into not only what are some of these factors that you've seen on your questionnaire, but also what are some of the physical representations that we can see, those automatic responses that a body should be able to have when they're processing sensory information efficiently. If they are not, then here are some clues that we can look for, and that just tell us a little bit more about what's going on in that root level. So, unfortunately, I would love to go through all seven of these, but... I, I planned, and I prepared for all seven, and then I just felt like, you know what? One, I'm never going to get through all of this, and I'm going at a surface level that you guys can find a lot of that information on the Internet. I'd rather take a little bit deeper dive and go into three of these, the three that are the least that most of us know about and have the greatest impact typically on the kiddos that I see. So we're going to go into proprioceptive vestibular and tactile with a little bit deeper of a dive. And if you have questions on auditory, visual, olfactory, or oral, 
save time at the end, okay? Does that sound good? All right. So we are going to begin with the proprioceptive system. So proprioceptive is essentially just the, the knowledge of where is my body in space. So we receive input from our skin, from our muscles, from our joints, from our tendons, that are all telling us this is the physical location of where my body is right now. So you guys have all of that input coming in as you're sitting in your chair. That's what's giving you the ability to say, I know I need to sit up with this much posture. I need to hold my, my arm in this positioning. I need to grasp my pencil with this much force in, able, in order to be able to write what I need to write and not make holes through the paper or have my hand cramping for the rest of the day. You know how much graded force to use. And it's not really something you have to think about or put a lot of effort into. You just automatically do it. So proprioceptive is that sense. When kiddos are seeking, I, I'm not registering this information as easily as you or I are. They're seeking, how do I get more of this information to be able to know where I am in space? And if you think about, if, I, if you didn't know where you were in space, that would feel really insecure, wouldn't it? If right now, the whole time you're just thinking, I hope I can have enough stability to be able to make it the whole time, and you start to get tired as you're sitting there, it's going to be affecting your emotional regulation, your ability to attend to the speaker. And so that's what we see with our kiddos who are seeking this, this proprioceptive input. A lot of times they're going to do it in disruptive ways. So we might be the kiddo who is headbanging, who is seeking proprioceptive input by throwing themselves against the wall or loves to crash and bump into things, a really rough player. This might be the kiddo who is wearing jeans that are two sizes too small for them because I just love the feeling of that craving input. Or some of these kiddos are the kiddos who refuse to come out of spandex because I just love that feeling of, of a little bit of tightness. Um, I have a kiddo in my BSF children's class who, as they're sitting there in, in story time, we are flopping into many different positions that are on the floor and trying to listen, seems to be attending, but seems distracted to the overall person because we're just flopping in different positions on the floor, but every position is getting more surface area that I can with a little bit of input as I crash to the floor. Sometimes, sometimes these are your toe walkers who are getting more input by just reducing the surface area so I can get a little bit more pressure into my, into my toes. Um, kiddos who are avoiding this input are often kind of lethargic, um, who are saying, okay, I I'm receiving almost too much of this information all the time. So they're more of your couch potato labeled kiddos, kind of have slumped posture, um, and often preferring loose clothing, don't really want those tight hugs, things like that. Proprioceptive avoiding is extremely rare. Proprioceptive seeking I see in almost every kiddo who has difficulties who comes into our office. This is the system that is almost first developing in utero and is constantly giving that sense of calmness as you think about that original environment being this tight womb environment. That baby comes out, we swaddle, we hold tight to be able to calm that baby down, and that those kiddos are growing up seeking the same things. It's really fascinating. A lot of times when we see deficits or difficulties that are happening during pregnancy, we're seeing the difficulties continue later in life as we're trying to seek that proprioceptive input. Mm. So just a quick road map of what's happening neurologically. 
is we're receiving this information, like I said, from muscles, skin, um, joints, and tendons. And it's taking the dorsal column, medial lumniscus, and spinal cerebellar tracts up. So this is responsible for motor planning, posture imbalance, and it's resting in the areas that also impact those, those areas in the brain. So um, spinal cord, not in the brain, but co- co-activation of just being able to have even posture balance. Um, cerebellum, which is responsible for all of that that postural control without having to think about it, sequencing, timing, and then the cortex that's responsible for motor planning. So what this is just telling me is I'm not just going to be looking for behaviors for a child who is crashing or headbanging or seeking that proprioceptive input. I also need to be looking at how does this body move. And so... That's a little bit about what we're going to talk about is how do we look at tone and joint alignment, postural, motor control, and then motor planning skills. So I'm just going to give you a few examples of things to be looking for. Does anyone want to get some proprioceptive input today who would like to do a little wheelbarrow walk this morning? (laughs) Nobody? Oh, Sandy, you're my girl. (laughs) You know what we'll do? I'll... I'll let you hold me so you don't yeah, have to. Thank you. I really ah. Okay. Oh, you're so sweet. Okay, we'll do it right here. So, I want you guys to just watch my proprioceptive form. You guys can tell me how good I am at this. Okay. Are you ready? I got you, girl. Okay. So, essentially, we'll just we'll just stand right here, and you guys can watch my form. So. Hopefully, what you can see is that my back is straight. There shouldn't be sagging or trying to compensate with flexion. There should be 90 degrees at my um, at my shoulders. That's showing can I support my weight without having to compensate by coming back or coming forward. Um, there should be no locking of the elbows, but a little bit of soft, you know, um, flexion here to be able to support and, and give um, some. With some cushion, if you will. And then there should be 90 degrees at the wrist, which quite honestly is quite difficult for me because um, of some wrist pain that I've had since I'm a baby. But I should be seeing 90 degree um, angle right here. Okay, are we good? Go. Okay. Because I want you to tell me if I'm having proprioceptive processing difficulties. Take a look at the kiddo on the right here. We're not seeing that. Thank you so much, Sandy. Um, Let me put my recording mic back on so we can keep getting that. But, um... So we're, we're not seeing that on the right. If you look at that kiddo, we've got a sagged back. We've got locked out elbows. That um, wrist flexion is not at 90 degrees. And so those are all compensatory strategies of I don't know where my body is in space, so I'm locking out to be able, still effective. They're still in wheelbarrow position. But what this is showing us is that that's, that's not sustaining. And so do you think that this kiddo is going to have difficulty sitting up in class for a extended time? Yes. Do you think that that might impact our ability to focus or to learn? Absolutely. So um, those are some skills that we'd be looking at. We'd also look at how is this child holding their pencil? And a lot of times writing tells us so much, but sometimes too much. (laughs) So all of us in OT school would be like, oh man, I don't have the the perfect writing um, grasp. 
that's okay. A lot of us have found something that works for us, but this is just a little lens into, are we a proprioceptive seeker or are we a proprioceptive avoider? So this kiddo you can see on the left using a beautiful quadrupedal grass that looks very functional, but we see a little bit of hyperextension at that um, distal interphalangeal joint. And so that's just showing us, okay, that joint is, per is not perfectly aligned, and that child might be seeking a little bit of extra proprioceptive input through that. The kiddo on the right, however, has a really loose, almost soft grasp is what we would call that. We're not seeing the, the force that's required to be able to adequately move that pencil easily. Um, and if you see all four digits and thumb are on that, that, that pen trying to control it. So I don't have the graded force to be able to use three fingers. That would make it a little bit easier. I'm adding extra to try to adequately support that. Posture is another big thing that we're going to be looking at. So this is kiddos who are struggling to process proprioceptive input are often giving us those C curves as they're sitting in their um, desk, or they're the ones that are kind of hanging out with their heads on their desk a lot of time. Again, it's just a lot of support, a lot of control to be able to sit up for that long of a period of time. And then feed forward or feed back. Um, we want to see how is this child able to anticipate the movement that's going to be expected of them. So feed forward activities are things like catching a ball or jumping a rope. It's things where I know I need to be able to time what, what I need to do just perfectly, sequence my motions to be able to see that ball's coming at me closer, 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 the discrimination skill again, and then being able to say I need to move my hand at this time, position it here, and then grasp now in order to effectively be able to catch that ball. So the number of, of sequences that are happening within that are incredible. Um, but that's one skill that we can look at and see is there further concern with proprioceptive skills as well as many other things. Um, and then feedback would just be, am I able to respond to the situations given to me to be able to stabilize? So think of when you go hiking and you start to lose your balance or slip on a rock a little bit. Are you able to keep yourself upright by taking a larger step or shifting your weight? This is the same thing we can test by just putting a kiddo on a ball and moving them from side to side or on an unstable surface and seeing, are we able to right our posture? Any questions on proprioceptive input? Okay. So what do I do if this kiddo is in my classroom and I see during Bible story time they're flopping around on the floor and seem to be seeking that proprioceptive input? The biggest thing we can do to help these kiddos regulate, when I have kiddos who are having total meltdown in our clinic, the first thing that I would do is say, okay, how do we need to get this child proprioceptive input immediately. That's like, when we're in the red zone, this is our, this is our number one skill to use or, or tool. Um, and so doing things that would give that input of where is my body in space. So with my class this past week, what I tried was, everybody, I think the wall is falling over. Help 
only push it up. It's good. We need to straighten it out. Push as hard as you can. Oh, I see it sagging a little bit more on your side. Push a little bit harder. Getting them to give me as much force as they can. Um, doing things like heavy work activities, which you can find tons of online, but it's just fun, common stuff. Like, let's crawl like bears on the floor. Let's hop like frogs. Let's um, do turtle walks where we put, like, weighted bags on your back and, and see if you can walk like a turtle. And just anything to be able to give that additional input of where is my body in space. Um, these are often also the kiddos that we would give weighted vests to or weighted lap pads just to be able to help them to focus during, during class time. Any questions on proprioceptive before we move on? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. Adults are being open to some strategies that could help because sometimes not I mean I'm sure as you can imagine we don't see the best coping strategies that can also come out of this in adulthood. Right. Right, right. So if you think of an adult who when I sit down with a parent and say, How do you handle stress? I'll have some who will say, I drink or I you know, I, I eat or whatever. But then I'll have some who say, I go for a run or I clean my house. I, I, my, my husband's saying I'm always reorganizing the, or, you know, redecorating the house. Um, the couch is never in the same location. I, I, want, I love massages or my husband needs to give me a deep hug. A lot of times our healthiest strategies for dealing with stress are all proprioceptive input strategies. So going for a run, getting pounding, 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 working out, getting that, that additional input of, of weights. Um, Getting a massage is that deep pressure input. So, um, so yes, I mean, it, it, our number one goal is if we can figure out a strategy that that individual actually enjoys and is able to, to work in daily life, like picking up a hobby, that's the win. We just won. So, yes, in, in adulthood, absolutely. If it's having a weighted blanket, if it's picking up a, oh, I love this new workout exercise, you know, I love P- P90X or um, doing the, what is it, bar or something, <laughs> you know, whatever is is your thing, yes, go for it. That That is excellent. So, why is that weighted blanket help? Yes. So, it's just essentially for you or I, if... Um, if we're sitting in a chair and we have our feet on the ground and we're getting input from 
from the floor, from our bottom, from the back of the chair. It's all additional input to tell us this is where our body is in space because those receptors that are hidden in the skin and in the muscles and in the joints are all getting that input that's saying this is where I'm grounded. If our body is not getting enough from that to say, I feel grounded right now, when we add weight, it's just almost adding a whole another layer times about three or four to help give that grounding sense. So if you think of all of those receptors in the skin or in the muscles, it's putting that pressure on them to tell you this is where you are in space. Yes. 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 So it's not necessarily, with the proprioceptive sense, it's not necessarily going to be, and now you're cured type of thing, but have I figured out strategies that work for me that then I now know how to regulate in a way that's. That, that functions well f- through society as opposed to disrupting the classroom. Or when I start to be able to identify, you know what, I'm getting a little bit of re- a little bit restless. I need to stand up and walk to the bathroom and then come back and take a seat as opposed to, you know, not paying attention in class or falling out of my chair and getting everyone to laugh at me or th- things like that. Um, so we can we can do little hidden strategies like, Bring a camelback water bottle, and that t- every time you bite and take a suck, you're biting and getting that proprioceptive input again. So little things that we can we can clue in like that. So you're saying then that most times this extends into adulthood, and does it, does it seem to have a decline as you're aging? That the need for proprioceptive input declines with some of these kids that. With the kiddos who we see who have severe sensory processing delays, we're often, we can see behaviors begin to normalize, absolutely. And we can see the need for how much proprioceptive input declines significantly. But is this a kiddo who's probably always going to lean more towards the seeking side? Yeah, probably. But that's okay because we all, none of us are at zero neutral. We're all leaning one direction or the other, and we're all just kind of, those of us who have not really thought about it before have probably adapted strategies that we don't really think of. Um, So, yes. And does that answer your question? And I wanted to go back to yours for a second. Here's a great example of how we can think of why does a weighted blanket, you know, help give that input. If we think about how well do I know where I am in space or, or the pressure that I'm receiving just right now, compared to being when we're in the water. And all of that pressure that we get when we're in the water, it's giving us consistent resistance and pressure on our body. Putting a weighted blanket on does the exact same thing. So it's just giving more input to where is my body in space and and adding a little bit more of that pressure. Yes. Oh, that's so great.
It's immediate. I mean, it is good. Yeah. question and um and i'll just tell you my personal style i feel like this is more beneficial than getting through all my planned information so if we don't get fully to the tactiles portion i think this is more beneficial i'd rather cover proprioceptive and vestibular really strongly so i'll kind of add some stuff in but if anyone's like no cover what you said then just let me know and i'll stay as long as you need me to um but so this We'll cover a little bit in tactile, but there are four um, there are four tracks, if you will, that receive tactile information, and it's light touch, deep pressure touch, pain, and temperature. And so light touch is going to light up the arousal system. It's going to say, like that's why tickling feels good, or when someone scratches your back, or or it doesn't feel good. It feels like it's it's kind of startling or alerting. So light touch is that way for all of us. And for some of us, we seek that light touch. And for some of us, we really dislike that light touch. But pr- deep pressure is almost always calming. It's just that is our regulating sense. So there are two different tracks that are they're communicated on. And it goes to two different areas of the brain. One is... I need to be alerted because someone might be touching me and then I need to turn around and respond to that person or something might be tickling me and I need to to catch it before it causes a wound, Um, whereas that deep pressure input is, again, giving me security of this is where I am in space. It's, It's the grounding sensation. Yeah. All right. Um, temperature and pain. Yes. Um, what all is creating all of this explosion in what we're, yes. what Yes. Yes. Little bit of it's genetic. Um, a little bit of it is ex- uh, ex- environmental. So um, we see with individuals who have had any type of um, stress during pregnancy or um, just disruption during that um, during that time intrauterine, then we're the Likelihood of seeing sensory processing difficulties is much higher um, in, the child. in the child. Yes, yes. Um, so some of it is just, yeah, this child was born with it, and some of it is environmental. During those really early forming stages, we were um, we were seeking out things to calm us that um, were not being provided in a picture perfect situation. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. And I'm, I might move on after this one. Does that sound good? Okay. Yeah, for children that are like on or something like that, 
I'm so sorry. It's, it's the children who are on. Uh huh. Unambulatory. Okay. Yes. 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 Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I um. I'll have to think about that one a little bit more. Of do I see them seeking it in other ways? But I think a lot of times kids who are unambulatory are still receiving that input. Um, just when we're seated in our wheelchair or um, or we're still getting that pressure. Um, let me think on that one. Yeah, I don't have any particular examples. I could say I saw it with this child. Um, I'm trying to think of my kiddos who have been um, unambulatory, and I and I feel like they didn't seek it more than another child, but I'm sure that you find that sometimes. Yeah, that's a good point. Are we ready for a vestibular system? You guys are awesome listeners, awesome question askers. Thank you. So if proprioceptive is the, where is my body in space, vestibular is how is my body moving through space. So this is housed in the inner ear. And every time that I change the positioning of my head, then I'm getting information of this is how my body is moving through space. So those of you who experience a little bit of vertigo, you probably have a lot more familiarity with the system than the rest of us do. Um, but any of us can think about if, if I was an avoider, someone who, who received this sensation so much more than you or I, than someone who is at midline, which, again, none of us really are, um, then I, I'm going to kind of feel a little bit more like I just rode on the merry-go-round seven times every time I lean over to pick up my pencil. I, my vestibular system is just so much more sensitive. And for a kiddo who's seeking this, I could go on the Gravitron or the spinny ride ten times and walk out and walk in a straight line. It does not infect me. And so the kiddos who are really seeking this, these are often are super active kiddos, running all around, zipping, spinning a lot of times. Sometimes they jump from chair to chair. When you go in um, to the family room, they're hanging upside down on the couch. Why are you sitting like that? I don't know. It feels good. <laughs> um, so, but a lot of times these kiddos aren't necessarily your most coordinated children. So they might be really active, but they're not your star athlete on the soccer team. Um, but then the kiddos who are avoiding this input are probably your more, I'll stand on the sidelines, I don't really want to get involved with that, and a little bit of a nervous fear to be entering into anything that's going to require some physical activity or possible just jolting of that system. So again, this is house in the inner ear. We're receiving this from the otoliths, the semicircular canals. What's different about the vestibular system is it's going to take the vestibular nerve directly into the brain. And so we're going to have, we're going to come first to the brain and be able to decide, okay, what, what is this impacting just of our our state of emotion? And so that that's what's really interesting is that the vestibular system grossly impacts, yes, our motor responses, but also our emotions and, um, and our digestive system. So that's why we start to feel a little sick if we, if we go on a car ride and we're going through the backcountry Kentucky or um, when we ride through a merry-go-round a few too many times. 
Um, but it also really impacts our emotional system. And a lot of times with kiddos who are super sensitive to this, we see that as soon as we start to give them that vestibular input, we can see ranges of sadness or anger come out. And so sometimes these kiddos, they're experiencing that throughout the day, and they can get a reputation for being a child who's really emotional or really angry, but in reality, this is just the neurological response I'm having to input that is overwhelming me. Um, but then, once it's hit the brainstem, it also will travel down down the spinal cord and out to some of our muscles. And the main muscles that this is impacting are our spine and our, our eye movements. And we can think about those eye movements when you or I just do move our head through space. Our eyes kind of compensate with us, right, so that we're not constantly feeling dizzy or needing to move really rigidly. So that's what's kind of able to give us this amazing interlocking of these two systems so that we don't feel dizzy if we turn and look quickly because our eyes are able to stabilize and move at a, at a rate that we could tolerate it. For a child who doesn't have those two systems working together well, we're going to have more of that dizziness feeling. And so the two kind of spectrums of this, seeking and avoiding, the kiddos who are avoiding, we often label it as gravitational insecurity. And the primary element that we're going to see in this is fear. So a child, this is a little bit of how my three-year-old presents, um, for first couple years of his life, hated going to playgrounds. <laughs> Mom, do not put me on that swing. It will not be a pretty picture. Um, First six months of uh, gymnastics were tears through the entire. But the best way to treat gravitational insecurity is consistently exposing while feeling comfortable. So I'm not going to make you do anything you don't want to do, but, yeah, we'll, we'll go to the playground every day, you know, and, and we will continue to watch you get a little bit braver and a little bit braver and try something a little bit more. So we're just taking baby steps, and we actually do start to see the vestibular system respond to, I hate being picked up, to, I can tolerate it. It's not maybe my favorite thing, but I'm willing to be picked up and maybe spun around a few times. And that's, again, it's just gradual growth. Um, Vestibular or under-responsive is going to be a child who is seeking out this input. And one of the ways that we can quickly see this is if we give that child a task that they should be able to do kind of with their eyes closed, maybe buttoning a shirt or something that's just a well-known task, and we take away the use of vision, how well is this child able to do that task? And again, there was a mention, kind of what age range are we talking about? Five and older Universally, you can basically apply to the things that I'm talking about. Um, if we're under the age of five, we're still learning a lot of these tasks. But, um, but buttoning a shirt, things like that, if we take away that use of vision, then that vestibular system is not strong enough to support how my hands or how my body should be moving on its own. Um, and then the two other skills we're going to be looking at are vestibular, ocular, and vestibular spinal. I've got pictures that I think do a better job of representing what that is. Um, so gravitational insecurity, great way to test this. Just put that kiddo on a ball, maybe put some cars or some bean bags behind them, and say, okay, I need you to reach back, go, I want you to grab what's behind you, and then I want you to toss it into the bucket that's over here with me. And see if that child is able to kind of without fear reach back, put their head backwards in space or tilt their head 
feedback and pick up what they need and then put it in. So a lot of times these kiddos really struggle with, like, bath time. You can ask mom, will they tilt their head back so you can pour the water on their head? Or just even doing little activities in the clinic and seeing what's their response to this. And if there's some difficulty, we know that gravitation, and especially the element of fear, we know that there's some gravitational insecurity going on. This kiddo, you can see kind of clasping onto the ball, or sometimes they'll clasp onto your arms, and their eyes will tell you if they're afraid or not. Um, Vestibular, ocular, ways that we're going to be testing this is just seeing how do those eyes move. So originally, um, we're going to be doing that Wow, okay, we are getting towards the end of time. I'm going to kind of go speed mode through the rest of this. Um, is, uh, is just visual pursuits. So how do I move my eyes when I'm not moving? So we'll just have that child sitting still, take maybe a pencil with an eraser and say, I want you to just watch the airplane and moving through all planes and seeing do we see smooth pursuits. Now, acknowledge that they're children and that we're not going to sit still the whole time. That's not what we're expecting. But if we see almost like it feels like their eyes are being pulled by a force that's not their own and it's not following smoothly, it's kind of jolting around, that's a child who's struggling to be able to vestibularly control those eye movements. And again, we're having some dizziness if that's what our eyes are doing every time we try to look up at the board and then look down to our paper to be able to write the notes for class. Um, post-rotational nystagmus is also, and I wish we had time to be able to, to exercise this ourselves, but um, this is probably your greatest key into what's going into on the vestibular system. So spinning that child, and what you would do is you would just put them on a, on a board or on a spinning chair, or even if needed, just having them do basically pin the tail on the donkey, spin around, Maybe I usually do it the number of times of their age, so they're seven, seven times. And then having them stand and look. Look straight ahead. I want you to look at, look at my eyes. And their eyes should do this little quiver. And if you want to practice this on your, your friends at home or whatever, do. Because it's just really fascinating to see your eyes do do this. They'll do this little quiver. And that's what, what is able to say, okay, I need to stabilize my visual field. Okay, now. And if you see that quiver go on for extended time periods, so we're see, saying like 10 seconds or longer, or if, it's, or if it's not happening at all, those are both signs that there is ish, there's issues in the vestibular system. And then the last area is just how is our spine responding? Is that, is that child able to extend and hold a prone extension, so basically that Superman position, or do we see some compensatory strategies of we're bending our elbows, we're bending our neck down, um, we're bending our knees? All of those would be signs that that child's struggling to have the, the core musculature to hold that position. Or supine flexion, when we're on our back, can we kind of hold that seat crunch without flexing our neck or putting a leg down or falling out of that position? What to do about it? A lot of times for a kiddo who's seeking vestibular input, one of the best things to do is take a step back and provide proprioceptive input to be, give that calming that they're seeking, um, but also to give them opportunities. If this is a kiddo who is seeking activity, we have to give them outlets to be able to receive that input that's not going to distract or, or make um, difficult whatever 
situation that they need to be in. So if we know that they're going to go to class and they have to sit for a long period of time and be still, can we get a swing at home? Can we give them a few rides on the um, on the tricycle before they go into school? Or um, can we ensure that maybe they do a few cartwheels or somersaults, giving them opportunities to be able to get that input that their head is seeking? And if this is a child who's avoiding it, again, that exposure, that's step-by-step. All right. We've got four minutes left. Well, I'm going to zoom through the tactile system, and then please come up for questions if you have any. Tactile system is touch. <laughs> you guys are all familiar with touch. We talked about the four types. So there's light touch, deep, deep pressure touch, temperature, and pain. And kiddos who are seeking this input are exactly what you would be thinking of. They're, they're delving into the, um, the sensory bins. They're, they're trying to, uh, sometimes these are the kiddos that when they are eating chili or yogurt, you see it all over, and they're just loving every moment of it. They, they want to go outside and play in the dirt, and they come in every time just covered in it. Um, they're constantly fidgeting. When you take them to the grocery store, we're, we're touching all of the labels as we walk down the aisle. Kids who are avoiding this, grooming tasks are typically very difficult for them. So I hate having my hair brushed, having my teeth brushed. Um, Dentist is a miserable experience for me. Uh, Fingernails are often overgrown. Um, Things like that. Often extreme particularities for what type of clothing I'll I'll allow on my body or um, what type of foods I'm willing to eat. And so... um, Essentially, the areas that this is all going to impact are our emotions, our arousal, and then again, of course, our motor planning. So the three areas that we're going to be looking at are, one, are we even registering if this child is receiving tactile information, or, yes, tactile input. So if I close my, this child's eyes and I just see, are they able to register that I'm touching them at all? And then if they are, are they able to localize where I'm touching them? So um, there's different measurements by how much grace, <laughs> grace room we give, on, depending on whether it's your forearm or the palm of your hand or your back or your lip. And so depending on the level of sensitivity of each area, there's kind of pre, predetermined measures. Um, that's how we know. But just being able to do simple tests, if we wanted to do on the palm of the hand, they should be within a half a centimeter of being able to know where did your pin just touch them. Um, modulation, am I able to sit and be able to pay attention even though this tag is on the back of my shirt or I feel the seam on the inside of my sock? Um, and then discrimination, that's the, that's the localization as well as the process of stereognosis, which is going to be that child's ability to reach into a pocket, pull through a bunch of coins and say, oh, I think I found the, um, the quarter and I'm going to pull that one out and put it in the vending machine or dig through a backpack and be able to find keys without necessarily looking in the backpack. So we've talked a little bit about registration. You can do it with the back of a pen, with a Q-tip, with a, um, a fine filament. This is um, the discrimination for localization. That's a um, picture just to be able to identify the measurements. And every time we have a deep black arrow, that's showing a measurement that for this child is too far um, where they're struggling to process localization. You can see for some of these kiddos, they're even processing the tactile input on a different digit than where it was actually given. 
and then stereognosis tests, being able to identify the object without vision. And then my favorite way to, to identify the modulation of input is just giving them some messy play exercises. So, so while I'm talking to mom, giving a little bit of shaving cream on the desk and just seeing, is this a child who I'm not dare touching that for the next 15 minutes or comes out looking like the abominable snowman? Um, but often for this area, we're going to get the most input from what mom and dad have to share about how is this child responding um, just in everyday life circumstances. That's 1030. So we used every second. And if you guys want to stay and ask questions, feel free or come up. But yes, please go ahead. Yes. Great question. An occupational therapist is what you would be looking for. If you were, um, AIRS OT is, or AIRS sensory integration is what I'm talking about here. And so all occupational therapists have a baseline training in sensory. Um, and that's going to be efficient. But if you wanted someone who was certified in AIRS, that's going to be, yes, thank you, A-Y-R-E-S. That's the um, creme de la creme, if you would. <laughs> so, um, but both both would would be able to give you more than enough. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The out of sync S Y N C child by Carol Kramowitz. Carol, um, here. You know what? I'm going to pull up that slide, and you can. Um, that guy, this woman right here, Carl Stockkranowitz. She, um, so she is using Ayers method as she's describing, um, but she is not Ayers herself. But she's she is using the Ayers method in what she's talking about. It's kind of a simplified. Here's a every everyone manual to the Ayers method. The out of sync child. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. So I, um, I'm not medical, but I started to look into occupational therapy and did like internship and loved all the sensory stuff. Oh, awesome. Um, so I already like think that way. Like I see a kid and I'm like. Yes. What's going on? Yes. Um, and so I just started working at a school as an assistant teacher in a fourth grade class. Excellent. And um, there is one child. I've only been there for two weeks, so I have very limited observation. Mm. Um, there's one child who. Shows a lot of sensory issues. Mm-hmm. Might be on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yes. Um, and essentially got moved from the last school because the teacher started suggesting things. Mm. And parents weren't okay with that. Mm. And moved into a new school. Mm. But we're seeing the same stuff show up. Mm. Uh, but one thing that I've noticed a lot is that, especially in, in focusing tasks, like if we're in the new time or we have something called Math Center where it'll be like six students that are usually working on a worksheet with me, mm-hmm. he'll Excellent suggestion. Yes. Yes. Or is it a, a tick coming from the spectrum of something? Hmm. Or 
And did you say he is diagnosed with autism? Not, okay. He's not diagnosed with anything. Okay. So I guess his last school, they started, started. Like, hey, we're seeing things, but his parents didn't like that, so they moved him to this school, yeah. but we're seeing the same thing. Right. He um, even slammed his book down on the floor before in the middle of reading. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, what's going on? And that was why. It's because he's like, I, I'm rubbing my hands. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. It's like he, he's freaking out because he doesn't know. Yes. Yes. Um, so yes. I'm curious, like, what would you, I know that there's probably more than just one issue there, but, but is he, there something that I could tell him, hey, try this? Yes, or, absolutely. Or, so proprioceptive input is, again, like, that's why he's slamming the book. I, I'm getting so frustrated, but the way that I can get immediate calming is is that deep pressure input. So just the force is giving me that regulating input. Yeah. But then giving him ways to have... I would pull him aside because it sounds like he's cognitively quite bright and he knows what's going on in his body. So being able to say, I can see that this is an issue that is just really distracting you and you want to be able to be in charge of it. So let's give you some tools to be in charge of it. When you feel like you want to, your body might be saying, I need this input. So how can we, with um, kiddos who are hand flappers, a lot of times we'll teach them to just go... Because a lot of times, you and I, when we're excited, we do a little bit of this. And that's what a kiddo, when they're excited or they're feeling overstimulated, that's what they're doing. So being able to give them something that's a little bit more socially appropriate but still receiving that input is a great way. Um, Putting on, he can be lotion boy. I mean, he could have, you know, or hand sanitize all day long. Or um, I don't want to impact his immune system too much with that. But, you know, I think. Okay, okay. So, yeah, um, but being able to figure out what are strategies and then and then just teaching him how do I do, use these tools in a way that's appropriate or if he, I mean, he's a kid, if he needs to have a sensory bin in the back or a wall with, like, sandpaper textures and just a little corner that's his area to say, I can feel the urge, I just need to go regulate it. A lot of these kiddos will put um, the spiky side of um, Velcro underneath their desks and they can just, you know, feel that that pressure or if they need that deep pressure input we'll put some TheraBand underneath on their um, chair legs and so they can kind of just get some some feedback yeah so um sorry that was like here's 12 suggestions about <laughs> But you can't. They started the whole, like, we need to have a teacher conference. Mm. But I'm also scared as to how the parents will react if they're going to pull him again. Right. Because of those questions. Right. So we're going to have to back off because we don't want to lose him as a student. Or if it's going to be like, okay, this is the second teacher. Let's start pursuing. And that's obviously the hope. Yeah. But until then, it's like I want to help him now with something that, as just being a teacher assistant, I can suggest. Yes. And having the mentality of, I do know that sensory processing concerns, like, Yes. Yes. And with that child, when you're talking to mom and dad, I cannot stress enough, just overload them. If they hear one thing more than anything, how much you praise their child. Oh my goodness. Like this child is so bright. I can see he, he wants to learn and he's recognizing when he needs to, to get a little bit of input. That's astounding to me. So I'm trying to figure out what tools we can give him to help meet his need because I can tell it frustrates him. Give him stories, but just amazed by his skills and then supplement it with but here's where I'm seeing he, he even wants some help. And he's, he's ver- I mean, the fact that he's verbalizing that to you astounds me. That's, 
unique. So, um, and then position yourself as their ally because that is, that's the number one difficulty with this is because parents, are, yeah, that's hard. So to receive that information about your child. Yes. Yes. Yes, almost like we, we, we rode the roller coaster up and then like as we, we exploded and now we're able to come down. And I find with a lot of our kiddos, we, we use a program called the Zones of Regulation in our clinic, which I really love. But we call that the red zone, the out of control zone. And I find a lot of times there's a couple things going on. With the, with the sensory system, we are just, we're expending all that we have in our arousal. And so once we, we do, it's like we've just run a marathon, so we're beat afterwards. But a lot of times I see those kiddos during their times of rage are doing proprioceptive-seeking activities. So, um, so not only are we just exhausting our physiological symptoms, but we're also probably getting some coping. And sometimes for some of those kiddos, if tactile or auditory is an issue that's that's kind of triggering us, then when I take control of the situation, people back up from me, the, the volume around me gets quieter, I'm in control of the volume, so I just put myself in the position of authority. But if you can give that child positions of authority of, if you need to escape to this quiet area of the classroom, you have authority to do that whenever you need, or tools for them to have the, we call it the voice and choice, then that can also be helpful in mitigating from getting to that point. Yes? At what point is it too late to, like, diagnose this disorder? I'd say never. Without, like, I guess my thought process well, is that, like, eventually you'll get to the point where you have a strategy, mm-hmm. and those are, like, so ingrained in you that you can't, like, do anything to change it. Hmm. Um, like, like, after certain points, Maladaptive like, strategy. So, sorry, so that last part? Like in your 20s. In your 20s. Like, you adapted strategies to cope with this your whole life and yeah. not healthy. Mm. Um, at what point is it like too late? Nope. Nope. Um, so I guess one thing I'd say is diagnose. It, would, it wouldn't be a diagnosis because it's not in the DSM, um, which is kind of cool. But, um, but at, in order to be able to say, this is something I wrestle with, I want to see someone to help or even just try to kind of explore this myself. Um, never, and that's the beautiful thing about neuroplasticity is that, praise God for that, there's no death sentence or label that's, you know, a forever. It's um, our brain is able to change. So, yes, it doesn't matter if you're 80 or if you're 8, there's still potential. It does change with time. If we can get a kiddo before the age of 5, we have way more ability to be able to reroute those neuropathways. Um, but thankfully, there's still um, absolute opportunity afterwards, too. You're not really rerouting the body So it's in the body, no. But in the brain, before, so the, before the age of five, the way I like to word it, and there's, um, gosh, this is digging from another presentation, and I'm, Blanking on the, the two types of neurogrowth that, that the labels are, but essentially, before the age of five, we are laying new 
pathways. So we are growing new neurons. We see a um, six-month-old, and let's just say they have 100 neurons, which is way less than they have. They have millions. But then we look at a um, five-year-old, and they have about a 1,000 times that amount. So we are actually laying new roadways. What I like to say is after the age of five, it's almost like, okay, now you have the roadways you're going to have. You get to pave certain roadways, and if you don't use these roadways, then they start to get potholes or they turn into dirt roads. But you still will always be able to say, you know what, I want to start using this pathway that I already have, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep driving over it, driving over it, driving over it, and it's going to get more and more paved or secure. Um, so before the age of five, we actually can grow new pathways. But after age five, um, it's basically, are we able to... Which ones are we using? Yes, 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 absolutely. Feel, just scroll through there. <laughs> hmm. Huge, huge piece of this. Because if you think about all of the areas that we talked about, if I am, um, it's that grounding piece again. I, I feel anxious to be able to step into that position because I might, it might trigger something in me that makes this physiological response of fear. Yes, and I then have anxiety about having that experience. So, yes, it. Oh, I'm so glad. Yes. I know, I know. I, my biggest recommendation would be if you can go see an OT, that would just to get a starting place, and then being able to see, okay, how can I help work with my child? Ask them, train me. I want to be the I want to be the therapist for my child at home. So just dump. with my email, and I would just love to, if you want to call and we can talk through strategies for your kiddo and your husband, um, I would love to, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes, um, I'm going to pull that one up real quickly, you got it, there you go, no, no, and you can, you're welcome to come back up and take whatever you need afterwards, oh yeah, I know, isn't that, oh wait, I went too far, I'm sorry, there we go, oh I know, <laughs> yes, that's the only feature I use. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming and having such great questions. Was, and then now I'm in Louisville as of a year ago. I still work for this clinic, um, providing all of our education um, online resources. Yes. Oh, you are so sweet. So I'm not practicing in in Louisville right now. I'm gonna start working towards getting my licensure. That's my that's my to do after the GMHC. So, um, but yeah, take down my email and be happy. Okay, okay, good. Oh, you're so sweet.